and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. This week, we are discussing HBO's hit sitcom Silicon Valley, which recently wrapped up its fourth season, and which Gav just watched in its entirety for the first time. I also recently marathoned the entire thing for the second time. So we are very excited to be discussing this today. We have been emailing frequently about this show. There's been a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, Yeah, the first time I watched it, I was sort of middling on it. And then the second time, I realized that actually it's amazing. So we have a lot to say. To give a brief summary, it is basically the story of a small tech startup in Silicon Valley that begins at a very early stage of their development and then grows larger, fails, grows larger, fails, and this cycle repeats multiple times. And the main character, Richard Hendricks, played by Thomas Middleditch, essentially goes on a Breaking Bad-esque path to moral decrepitude as he gets more and more rich and powerful, although he doesn't actually get that rich or that powerful as the series progresses. So the interesting thing about this show is that it's essentially a sitcom, although it's seen as kind of a prestige comedy because it's on HBO on Sunday nights and because it's really well made and the satire is really, really clever, all of which we're going to talk about. But it is still essentially structurally a sitcom. Most of the characters don't have very much character development. It all takes place basically in one room with some excursions to other companies And a lot of the comedy is structured very similarly. But it's very, very satisfying, and it's really, really funny. So it is in some ways kind of traditional, in some ways more reflective of the more progressive comedy shows that are on. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, the structure is like a tragic arc about Richard Hendricks, because even right at the beginning, you can kind of tell that it's going to end in disaster because the idea is that he's this idealistic young startup programmer guy who's like, I'm going to create this company that's going to be completely different from all these other evil companies in Silicon Valley. And then you can already tell that the way the whole business works means that he will inevitably be corrupted and turn into exactly the stuff that he hates because that's how life works. So he has this kind of tragic Shakespearean arc, but in the context of a sitcom structure where most of the other characters are kind of static. Yeah, so two of the main supporting characters are played by Kumail Nanjiani and Martin Starr, and they essentially never change throughout the entire run of the show. Their function, they're both programmers, and their function is to argue with each other about everything because they nominally hate each other but are obviously best friends, and they're completely hilarious. Martin Starr plays Gilfoyle, who is a Satanist, And Kumail Nanjiani plays just a very, very awkward man who doesn't know how to interact with women especially, but people in general. And they are just constantly going at it. And it's really funny. But at a certain point watching, I realized that they're basically there to be the B-plot of every episode and never to have emotions, which actually works fine because of the way this show is structured. But it's quite different from something like... Veep, which is not emotional, but isn't structured so much as a traditional sitcom, like there's just a lot going on all the time, or something like Girls or Looking, which was canceled after only two seasons, that are much more dramedies. Like, this is really just comedic. Richard, meanwhile, is just like a nightmare of a person who does get all of the... If there's any pathos in the show, it it goes down to 
his progression as he sort of realizes that he's probably not going to be able to do exactly what he wants to do with this company. He's, he's really quite unlikable. And in the first couple of seasons, he's also, I didn't find him that interesting because like in the first season or so, it's like, oh, he's like this kind of vaguely relatable nerd man, which is not remotely interesting to me. But like the worse he becomes, the better he is. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of obviously how it works. You don't sympathize with him necessarily, except in the sense that like he has the most compelling emotional arc. But you do really want the business to succeed because that's the whole driving force of the show. So even when he's doing something awful, you're like, wow, I hope that like his horrible business venture gets pulled off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the thing about that character that's so interesting is that I suspect this is just my read on having watched it, not based on anything that the creators have said, is that they want you to sympathize with him in the first two seasons. And I think the first two seasons are definitely inferior in quality to the second two, although I think they're very funny and enjoyable. I'm certain that some people sympathize with him in the first two seasons. Well, right. I think think you're meant to, because he's a very generic nerdman protagonist. And he's the one who kind of doesn't want to do it, like the big companies, and he's very altruistic in that sense. But there's nothing about him that's particularly distinctive. And Thomas Middleditch, who plays him, I think gives a really, really good performance. So on that level, he feels like a distinctive person, but the writing is not there to back that up. And I, watching it the first time especially, was kind of like, I don't care about this man. Everyone else on this show, with one exception, which we will get to later, is more interesting and funny. Even though, again, the actor does a great job. And then I think they sort of figured out that actually the show would be much more compelling if he's just a dick. And then they leaned hard into that and it got so much better. (laughs) So much better. Because you still kind of have to root for him slash them. But you increasingly don't really want to. But it's definitely in the Breaking Bad zone. Yeah. Actually, before we go any further, obviously we're no longer in the intro zone, but for kind of spoiler purposes, I'm sure a lot of people listening have not watched Silicon Valley. You don't need to worry about spoilers because this is a sitcom. We are going to discuss some spoilery stuff towards the end of the show, kind of about stuff that happened in season four. But before that, it really, you don't need to be concerned. It doesn't Plot twists are not the zone here. Yes. (laughs) Especially because the entire structure of the show is they get funding and then they fuck it up and then they manage to get funding again and they fuck it up. And it just... Which makes it sound boring, but it's actually extremely gripping and very funny. (laughs) Yeah. And some people have criticized the show for that repetitiveness. And I think there is something to that. But part of the point of the show is that they are trapped in this repetitive nightmare of attempting to... To, to become rich, basically. I mean, that's not why at least They Richard want to make the world it. a better place, which is what every tech company does. There's an amazing montage oh just in God. the first episode, which I think got a lot of coverage when the show started because I remember seeing about it and being like, oh, this looks interesting and never watching the show because it was all about men. Um, I was wrong. <laughs> but um, it's basically just like a montage of all these people kind of pitching their startups at a tech conference. And it's all just like completely pointless or incomprehensible really like the minutiae of tech business but all of them are trying to convince people that it's going to change the world and make the world a better place and kind of the 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 central conceit the the main company that Richard Hendricks starts in his frenemy's house it's a company called Pied Piper which in the first place is like a nonsense name and that makes sense because most tech companies have nonsense names 
which is like something they're really good at thinking up names for in this show. He basically, he invented an algorithm that compresses files really small. And so the entire show is just hinged on the fact that he's found a way to make files smaller and the ways that they can manipulate this algorithm to like make different businesses in Silicon Valley and how different investors will make them turn it into like other useless products. So it's like not a glamorous idea, but because of like the hype in the world of Silicon Valley, people are constantly trying to make this into some like visionary product. But it's like, you're only gonna understand why it's important if you work in the tech industry and it's kind of everyone in the whole show is just drinking their own Kool-Aid all the way through. And they all have like far too much money because, you know, whenever the main characters are broke, it's because they've lost $10 million by like kicking over a server or something. And it's not because they're <laughs> actually broke. And they all live in the same house in this classic sitcom scenario because they're working out of, I mean, what basically amounts to like a kind of apprenticeship program, but not really. Um, it's there's a this guy startup named, incubator. It's yeah, a startup yeah. incubator, which is a real kind of thing. But it's like, it's literally like a suburban house with this guy named Ehrlich Bachman, who's played by the odious TJ Miller. And he plays this kind of Falstaff-like character. He's a stoner. He's extremely obnoxious. He's a con man. He just is a gaping void for attention. And he is kind of mooching off all these younger, smarter, creative tech people and he's letting them live in his house which he describes as an incubator and in exchange he'll get like 10% of whatever companies they eventually make so like the thing that he originally did to like make his own not very much amount of money is he made an app that finds planes from a particular aviation service or something and he called it like Aviato and he has like an Aviato brand car and (laughs) t-shirts and swag everywhere it's like it's completely nothing app that like no one's ever heard of but he is kind of one of the main characters. Like the main characters are Richard Hendricks, Ehrlich Bachman, this con man guy who's extremely obnoxious. Then the two friends, Dinesh and Gilfoyle, who are also living in the house. And then kind of the final main character is a guy named Jared, who Morgan and I are both in love with. Oh. I just, as soon as he showed up in episode one, I was just like, I love this man so much. <laughs> and I loved him more with every next episode. Uh, <laughs> it's also, it's like, as I was kind of watching this, I was tweeting a bit. And even as I was sort of tweeting about episode one, like, I love this Jared guy. He's so vulnerable. He's just amazing. Like someone was linking me to an article about Silicon Valley being like, women love Jared. And I was just like, I, I can't help it. I'm a stereotype. But <laughs> kind of the idea of this character is that he, when the show begins, he and Richard are both working for essentially Google and um, the company called Hooli, which is run by this megalomaniac CEO who is just really like all the kind of stereotypes of Silicon Valley CEOs. He has like a personal guru who lives in his office. He's constantly making all of his employees do weird garbage stuff. And he thinks that he's a visionary, but he's actually like the world's worst boss. And kind of a lot of the show is like a tension between Richard wanting to keep control of his company and this Hooli CEO trying to take over. But Jared is his personal assistant in the first episode. And as soon as Jared sees Richard and his idea, he quits his job and basically offers himself up to be like Jared's kind of business guy because everyone else in his company is just a tech nerd who doesn't know how to run anything. So Jared kind of becomes the mother of the group. Uh, (laughs) And he's played by Zach Woods, who is... I've now discovered a hilarious improv comic. Apparently he like made up a large proportion of the stuff that he does in the show. And he kind of starts off as like, he's this vulnerable, quite like sweet, very pale guy who like isn't really good at doing the sort of mean, sort of mean natured ribbing that all the other guys do in the house. Like he's just really sweet 
and a little bit pathetic and obsessively loyal to Richard Hendricks. But as the show progresses, he starts to reveal things about his backstory that were just like unbelievably horrific, like stuff about his childhood. You know, you find out that he's an orphan and like he's been homeless. It's a really great arc because as this is happening, he's slowly having to realise that he's joined this company out of idealism because he really believes in Richard Hendricks and functionally is in love with him. But like, as the show progresses and you find out more about his personal vulnerabilities, you also realise that Jared is being forced to realise that this guy who he really loves is actually nowhere near as nice as he thinks he is and he's just being used, even though the main characters are not malevolent like Ehrlich Bachman. They're using Jared as a tool because he's like willingly offering himself up. It's just so good. It's so poetic. (laughs) I'm very invested in it. (laughs) It truly is like Breaking Bad. He if lives in a garage has... with like a rack of shirts. <laughs> it's, oh god, it's good. It's, it's so good. They they are the Walter White and Jesse Pinkman of the of the show. <laughs> yes, Jared is truly the star of this television program, in my opinion. I was emailing you something about Zach Woods, which led to you indirectly led to you watching this show, and you were like, I don't really get it, like people really like this guy like he just looks like a normal man and i was like you don't understand like he's wonderful and then you watch like so funny you watch like one episode of the show and we're like i love jared i was like i know (laughs) he's the greatest it Um, genuinely took me like a season and a half to even learn richard's name (laughs) they just the thing is like richard is not it's not a memorable name And he's not a memorable man in the first two. He's just the centerpiece that all the other characters revolve around in a more interesting way. Yes. It's really when um, when they let him become more of a megalomaniac, mm. I think, that, that it gets going. It also becomes much more serialized in the yeah. third and fourth season, which I think helps a lot. The first yeah. two seasons are very sort of plot of the week, which is fine, but it becomes better. Which is a general trend in comedy shows, I think. They tend yeah. to get more serialized. But that allows them to pursue the real nightmare of what they're dealing with more effectively, I and think. And also, they get to give the female characters more stories of their own. Um, because I think I mentioned in last week's episode, when we were sort of talking about our kind of intro to Silicon Valley, this is definitely a show that centers around male characters. And it's the one show where they have a legitimate reason for that to happen, right? (laughs) Because Silicon Valley is so incredibly dominated by white men and like the the show really reflects that. So it's like the, I would say the show is like 80 to 90% white guys, then like some Asian guys and some white women. The female characters are working for, it's like an investment company. So it's like one of these investors that just like they put money into tech companies and then hopefully they get money out the other end. In season one, they kind of introduce this character, Monica, who's the second in command to this very eccentric genius investor. And she kind of becomes a little bit like Richard's introduction to the world because she actually knows what how stuff works. And in season one, I wasn't especially into this because I was sort of like, are they going to position this as a romance? Because if so, why the hell would she ever date Richard? And um, they but- do kind of position it that way in yeah. that season. Like Unfortunately, like, should we go out for drinks? <gasps> they head like, that one off, thank vomit. God. Because it yeah. would just be like, why? He's, no, don't. <laughs> um, but then like later on, they replace her boss with another woman who acts almost exactly like a Vulcan in Star Trek. She's very, she's very like literal and she loves 
maths and she has a lot of um, peculiar mannerisms and she's like another kind of genius who's incredibly good at investment but like is not good at the sort of schmoozing side of things and they become the main characters who are like not in the central tech company and then there's you know there's various other like female sporting cast members but the show kind of reflects the reality of Silicon Valley like in that sense in the same way that it's really really accurate at satirizing the weird business stuff and it also kind of tackles sexism in quite well-informed ways you know later on when they're able to hire more programmers they like hire this woman who's clearly really great at her job to like come and work in their house and they're like so keen to not be misogynist that they just go massively overboard and she's clearly like what the fuck are you doing like they're, they're, they, they, they kind of explain like their anti-harassment policy to her and she, they were like yeah if you make like an anonymous complaint there's like four people living in this house like we know who the complaint's gonna be from and also at the same time because she knows a couple of the other guys there she's like relentlessly trolling them and one of them does like a fake harassment thing at her like to get her into trouble so it's like they really they kind of understand like the dynamic obviously it's not going into the depths of the horrors that people have been seeing at uber and that sort of thing but it is a comedy so that's not really something i'm expecting from silicon valley yeah i think it would be i mean it would it wouldn't fit right it would just be totally very weird yeah and they do address a lot of the fucked up stuff in the tech industry in a way that i think is quite sharp and effective but there are there's a level at which it would just not work like this the show wouldn't be able to handle it i don't think there is one scene in i think the second season where gavin belson the ceo of huli the google type company who is played very wonderfully by an actor named matt ross does almost verbatim elon musk's controversial comments about how billionaires are more persecuted than Jews in the Holocaust. And that is really a sublime moment. They don't really go is, anywhere with it, but they just yeah. put it in clearly because that happened and they were like, we must include this in our show somehow. I mean, and, there's there's oh. an amazing like long article we're going to link to in the show notes interviewing different writers and producers on Silicon Valley and the research they put into it because they, they have like hundreds and hundreds of contacts in the tech industry. And they're just talking about stuff that they couldn't include in the show because it was too over the top. Like they went to, I think it was maybe Google. I'm not sure, but they went to like some really major tech company um, and they spoke to some guy who worked in their like visionary department where they like make up ridiculous new ideas. And this guy was like complaining that he thought they were being a bit too over the top in their thing. But like then halfway through, he had to leave the meeting and he was wearing rollerblades and got stuck in the door. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you can't put that in a sitcom because it's like too hammy. But all the stuff they're satirizing is like really real. And just before we started recording, I actually came across an article that just reminded me so much of Silicon Valley. I'm going to read out a paragraph to you. And this one isn't too obscure. So I think everyone knows who Mark Zuckerberg is, the creator of um, Facebook, who is definitely not running for president at the moment. Oh my God. And there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about the fact that he's currently doing like a tour of every state in America and he's like speaking to real people, but they have to send like a squad along ahead of him to make sure that all the real people are like safe for him to meet and no one knows who he is. So it all happens in perfect secrecy. (laughs) So the quote here is, for nearly a decade, Mr. Zuckerberg has started every year with a personal challenge. In 2009, that meant wearing a tie every day. Another year, he swore only to eat meat that he had personally slaughtered. I just killed a pig and a goat, he boasted at a private Facebook post in 2011. 
So now <laughs> he is traveling around. Like last year, I think he read a book a week or something. And this year he's traveling around every state in the country because he has no more worlds to conquer. Meeting normal people in the world's most abnormal circumstances. And it's just like this situation of him sort of slaughtering pigs and goats. It's like the ideas, you can see the idea where it's coming from, right? It's like not something I necessarily disagree with conceptually, but Silicon Valley does a really good job of illustrating like the mindset that people go into when they're so incredibly rich and they're surrounded by yes men that they just think that every idea they have is a genius and they also have to find ways to like fill their time because you can't spend that much money. And that's kind of what the Huli CEO guy is. Like in the background, he's got his own kind of arc going on. And it's just all about him either trying to just crush some other new goal, which is completely pointless because it's like you've already won everything. Or he's just got some like bizarre side project that's clearly complete nonsense. Yeah, they give him a lot of strange things to do during one season there's a long series of exotic animals that he brings into the office because clearly he just decided that that was the interesting thing he was going to do for this series of months, which seems very plausible. I'm sure someone has done that. That's probably based on a real thing. But it also gets to the fact that despite, despite the fact that these are all people nominally interested in having big ideas that make a big impact on the world or whatever. It is so much about making money. Even if they themselves don't express massive interest in having a big house or whatever. So like Richard doesn't talk about dreams of, you know, having a mansion, etc. The entire way the discussion of the businesses are framed is when this becomes a billion dollar company and when this you hit this point where it's worth this much money and yeah i mean it's, it's a scoring on, system because right? they're using money is like yeah. it's almost like money's imaginary to them because unlike if you're working as like an investment banker or something it's like the kind of culture is about earning money so you can spend it but there's no work hard play hard concept because they're all just living in this like suburban house together they don't really have personal lives they don't buy stuff they all just wear the same shirt all the time and like even the Huli CEO guy he looks a lot more polished than the younger guys because he's been on the scene for longer like he has really great hair and suits and stuff but you don't see his house for ages and ages and he clearly spends like all of his time at the office thinking up new ideas and using money is like a measuring system and like they even introduced that in season one i think because he has this lifelong feud with the guy who's the original head of the investment company like monica's boss they have this kind of long rivalry going on and they just like are buying companies to compete with each other so it's like they have this really weird attitude to money but it's like if you if you like follow kind of tech media at all it just feels so familiar and it's like obviously i am not a tech journalist but I'm exposed to them a lot of work and I see a lot of these news stories and I'm constantly like oh my god why what is this horrible world <laughs> yeah and I was just struck by it watching it this time because watching them having to pitch these apps endlessly that will only be successful in this world if you get millions of dollars of funding and then only really successful if you become a billion dollar company which obviously happens never right like that happens to like 10 companies it's not a thing that 
A, I was like, thank God I don't work in Silicon Valley and have no desire to ever do this with my life. But also B, that the writers must have been drawing on their experiences of pitching shows and getting rejected. I was like, oh, that's definitely where that's coming from. So I guess I shouldn't actually feel this good about not having to do this because I kind of do. But that the standard is so high. And then that means that they're you're constantly just doing this Sisyphean endless journey up and down and up and down towards nothing. Yeah. But then it is all measured in money. So like there's this one character who's obsessed with being a billionaire. And then when he briefly is no longer a billionaire because of various investments and whatever, his entire sense of self-worth is gone. And he actually is the only character who you see spending money. Yeah, like Because he he's not of... really a tech person. Right. He's this classic like douchebag who has a, t- yeah. has a ridiculous car. Very funny character. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's so good. But it's just this surreal thing where the product itself is not what it's about, even if for the characters them- themselves, that's what they think they're doing. You can tell that at a certain level of success, it completely stops being yeah. the, the concept, which is what's so bleak about it. And the whole oh. kind of the world of the whole tech industry in Silicon Valley in real life is like this kind of second economy on top of the real economy where they're just trading in imaginary stuff that doesn't have a worth. I mean, obviously, like the concept of money having worth is all philosophical and we don't need to go into that brain twister. But um, most of these massive, massive companies don't make money. Um, and what you were saying a minute ago about sort of this Sisyphean push to nothingness, it reminds me of, there was an article, I think maybe a year or two years ago, that was sort of, the premise was Twitter doesn't need to get any bigger because the issue of Twitter is it has such a high profile in media, like maybe disproportionate to the number of people who are actually using it in terms of like all social media sites. And it also doesn't make any money. Yeah. Uh, so it's not profitable. And like the company is constantly both trying to grow as much as possible and also become profitable. And it's not succeeding in either of those. And the problems it has are constantly getting attention from everyone who uses it. You know, they've got a huge harassment problem. And infamously, every time Twitter updates, they'll update something that doesn't seem like it matters, but they'll completely fail to handle all the harassment issues. And a lot of people just think it's because you know, they don't want to shut down all the harassment bots because then they'll lose users kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I can't remember the exact gist of this article, but basically it was saying not every social media company and not every tech company should even be bothering to try and aim for this like massive sky high um, success because you can't have everyone use something because then it just becomes such like a widespread generic product that is not useful anymore. And if you consolidate your user base, then maybe you'll have much more success. Yeah. Um, which makes rational sense, but like it doesn't make sense if you're coming from the background of every single thing you do um, that's successful is immediately rewarded with more imaginary money that you then have to earn in the future because it's like they're all being paid in advance for something they don't even know what they're going to do yet. And they have so much money kind of falling around that it's like, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. Well, some of the funniest scenes are them getting funded for $10 million or whatever, right? And then they don't actually have any, a plan for what the business is going to be. And then especially in the first season, Richard thinks that this means he's just going to get a check for the, this, not $10 million, like for a bunch of money. And he gets told, you know, no, that's not actually how this works. Like, you get a certain amount of money and then we'll pay you more once you get to this point. 
And so in the universe he's living in, which is not yet at the stage where you've entered this completely nebulous abstract space, they actually are dealing with real money and they keep running out of it, which is where all their problems come from. And so it is sort of like just beyond the horizon is the world where you can just live without this problem, but they never quite managed to re reach that point, partially because they only have this algorithm that compresses files, but they don't actually have a business model ever. I mean, they kind of, they, they do have different business models at different points, but none of them ever. Yeah, I mean, work. they have one person who knows how business works and it's Jared and he's not a salesman. And then at one point there is a rival company who has basically the same product and they just have 90% of their building is just taken up by the sales team. And it's like, obviously the people with the sales team are the ones who are going to succeed, yes. not the ones who have like a little idealistic project in their friend's basement. <laughs> yeah. And a million programmers. I think there's a, I think there's a scene around that point in the show too, where Richard is like, obviously we're going to succeed because our product is better. And Jared has to be like, well, um, Perhaps not. Uh, that's not exactly how this always works. Like the people who will sell things <laughs> actually are the ones who will make it because that's how it works. I think that line actually may come from there. He is amazing, like broish lawyer who is not a central character, but who is truly a, a beautiful sort of spice on the top of the show. Oh my word. All the sort of tiny little characters even if they don't appear very often, are just so perfect. There's like, so many good oh, background characters oh, in this. All of the lawyers, in fact. We don't need to discuss them, but... There's yeah. there's a lot of really great terrible lawyers. I really love um, the scam artist guru, who's always yes. just following the Huli CEO around and basically telling him that he's a genius. And it's just like, this guy is the smartest person in the show. He has no figured doubt. out a really easy job and he's the only person in the room who has any emotional intelligence and he's using it to manipulate the fuck out of a billionaire. <laughs> yep. Very effectively. It's a great plan. It works. Good job. Oh my God. Yeah, it's really, really funny. Um, but we should talk about the interpersonal relationships in the team. Yes. Which is obviously the actual good thing about this show. <laughs> <laughs> as clever as the satire is, that's not why we're here. We're here for the other stuff. Yes. This is the Girls Talk About Silicon Valley yes. podcast, and we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So there was a great article in The New Yorker a couple of years ago that we will link to. I unfortunately did not open it before we started recording, so I cannot share with you who wrote it, but we will link to it, so it's fine about how this is the gayest straight show on television. And I truly believe this to yeah. be the case. It's, it's not, not terminology I'm wild about. Yes. Um, given the preponderance of people going on and on about like homoerotic subtext versus uh, like actual queer representation. But this is a really interesting show in terms of yes. the relationships they have between like undersexed men who don't understand their own feelings. And they're all in this like really male-dominated environment, but they've not—they don't have the kind of bro structure because they're all nerds. So no one knows how to behave, and it is hilarious. Well, right. And what was interesting about the article was that the writer, and this becomes even more so the case in the fourth season. And this article was written before this came out, was that there are shows where there is a lot of homoerotic tension between characters, and then nothing ever happens because this is 
the nature of television. Yeah. And obviously, and also a lot of the time it's unintentional, yes, which is the most frustrating. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, of course, obviously there are shows where there actually is queer representation, which yeah. is not what we're talking about today. But in this show, that's not actually really the case because these people are so like wrapped up in their own little worlds and just truly don't know how to talk to people at all. And they talk about, about women sometimes and sometimes even go on dates, sometimes even do have sex with women, but they just do not know how to deal at all. And yeah, so- Gilfoyle is the only one who has a girlfriend and like yes. a relatively normal relationship. Like he's in a long distance relationship with like a sexy Satanist girl who yeah. is now going to be playing Marvel Squirrel Girl. <laughs> Good job, Tara. Good job. Well done her. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's Martin Starr, who was amazingly in Freaks and Geeks so many years ago, who I think is the only one of the central characters who has any kind of sexual charisma at all. He seems like an actual adult and just like doesn't give a shit what anyone else is doing. It's like, good job. But all the rest of them just seem like these weird kind of man children who just don't know what is happening. So it's not exactly that you get these scenes where they're like gazing at each other or standing really close to each other and like there's something going on. But because of the nature of the way the show is set up and because they don't know how to deal with women, all of the relationships are between men and oftentimes highly emotional, even if the way the show is set up is not exactly sophisticated in its emotional development, if that makes any sense. And so I was watching it and I was just like, oh my word, there's a lot going on here. Especially, needless to say, between Richard and poor Jared, who loves him very deeply. As I believe Zach Woods has even said, like, yeah, obviously Jared is love with I mean, it's very much a story about, like, Jared unrequited love and, like, obsessive belief in Richard, which is not earned. And then Richard doesn't really know about it. And there's, like, points where you can tell that Jared's kind of making him uncomfortable and, like, then he reacts, but then he just sort of forgets about it because he's so single-minded. But it's just a really interesting and kind of unique dynamic they have with all of these characters because they don't have social lives as such. They don't really have interests and they don't necessarily like each other. They're not friends in the sense that they'd seek out each other's company, but it's kind of like they all live in a submarine together. So they all, (laughs) they all like, it's kind of enforced that they all have their closest relationships with each other. So they're all living in the same fucking house. And like, they clearly all hate Ehrlich Bachman, but they have to live with him. So they're sort of tolerating him. And because he's determined to just take everything he can possibly get, he like refuses to believe any slight signal that anyone doesn't like him. So he just assumes that they're all his friends and he's See, mooching off them. I I think that you are reading... So Eric Bachman is the horrible character we were discussing yeah. earlier. I think that you are reading that not necessarily how the show is intending it to be read. I am sure because the show thinks that he's like a lovable rogue and I'm like, this guy is a monster. Right. And I think <laughs> Richard especially is definitely friends with him. And it doesn't work at all because he's not funny he's not interesting i think he's meant to be a kind like kind of he's definitely meant to be an asshole but i think he's meant to be a lovable asshole and he's it's the kind of character that i watch and i don't find him remotely lovable or charming at all and i think probably a lot of straight men to generalize would it's like i bet my dad finds him funny 
I mean, I love my father. My father has quite good taste. But I think that's probably the kind of character he would think was funny. And I don't in any capacity. But I think throughout the show, he does a lot of bad things. And the show doesn't pretend that they're not bad. But I don't think he's meant to be wholly unredeemable. Which I found very frustrating for the first three seasons. Yeah, because the sitcom formula, all the characters always kind of spring back to their original state, apart from Richard and maybe Jared. But with Ehrlich, it doesn't work so well because the stuff he's doing is like really abusive and bad. And in order to kind of put the toys back in the box at the end of the episode, he has to like do something that redeems himself. He doesn't really do stuff that redeems himself on a personal level, but he'll do something that helps the company professionally or gives some useful advice or something. And about half the time... I'm not convinced by the fact that he's giving them useful professional advice, even when it's accidental, because it feels false. It feels like they're kind of finding a way to make him redeemable. But also it's impossible for me to forgive him for the stuff that he does because it's just so unpleasant. Um, And I think it's just like, that's just the way I'm going to be watching the show. And it's not like I dislike lovable rogue characters. You know, I love plenty of them. Good old Tony Stark. But this guy's clearly an asshole and it doesn't help that the actor TJ Miller is actually, he's actually a stand-up comedian who I'm absolutely sure I would not like his work, but he's kind of freely admitted in interviews that he is not an actor. And the other actors in the show are actors and he's just not that great. He's not a, he's not talented especially at the beginning. He does improve a bit as it goes along, but not enough to be good enough for the quality of the show, which otherwise, or the acting quality of the show, I should say, which otherwise is very high. And it just doesn't work at all. And to move into more spoilery territory about the last season, he wound up leaving the show at the end of the last season in nebulous circumstances it's unclear what exactly occurred he gave a very bizarre exit interview to the hollywood reporter where he said various negative things about a lot of the people who worked on the show it is not the kind of interview one sees yeah Uh, you do not usually see people bad-mouthing their co-workers in the hollywood reporter which is what he did and he was speaking in a way that made it seem like he thought that he was like a really desirable talent and, um, yeah. I, you know, he's he's voicing the main emoji in the emoji movie. It's not like he's Johnny Depp. Right. I mean, it was it was really, really strange. So who knows what actually went on there, but it was relatively clear if you've been following all the press on this that he was not deeply beloved by all of the other actors on the show who seem to be genuinely very good friends with each other. In a way that, as far as I can tell, is not the sort of, like, fake promo, like, oh yeah, we're great friends. We're Yeah, and it's also not the kind of show, it's not like we're watching, you know, friends, friends. They could just be co-workers and it'd be fine, because it's fucking Silicon Valley, but they do seem to like each other's company and spend time together socially. Yeah, and as certainly Thomas Middledish and Zach Woods, who play Richard and Jared, are definitely actually friends. And this is interesting to me, because what happens in the fourth season is that the sort of poles of the relationships on the show shift somewhat. So basically, Dinesh and Guilfoyle are paired up from the beginning of the show. Their dynamic, as I was saying, is that they argue with each other, they provide comedy on the side. But a lot of the sort of emotional, basically the emotional arcs of seasons one through three deal with Richard and Ehrlich having some kind of problem and resolving it which I do not find massively satisfying because I think Ehrlich is 
odious. The show has a lot of other stuff going for it, so it's okay. But that always held me back from fully getting into the show, I would say. In season four, he really is relegated to stuff happening on the sidelines. Like, he's given these weird side plots that don't really have anything to do with each other. And And he's also kind of by himself. Yes. Yes, indeed. (laughs) And the main emotional arc for Richard has to do with his relationship with Jared, which obviously is vastly superior as a plot to the alternative. And I just thought this was a really fascinating thing to see with the television show because it's not often that you have this much insight into what's happening behind the scenes, even though, of course, we don't know exactly what it was. We have some idea. And they basically shifted it so that their main character, like the main actor, got to do a lot more stuff with his good friend. But it also was by far the best thing for them to do for the show. Because the relationship between Richard and Jared is the most interesting thing in the show. And so they sort of reoriented this whole thing in a way that probably made everyone on the set much happier and made the show better. And I was like, this is so fascinating to watch. It's basically the opposite of what happened with The Good Wife, where the lead actress suddenly she had like a feud with one of the supporting characters who was meant to be her best friend. And everyone who watched the show was like, we have to see these characters get back together again before the finale. And they hated each other, or rather the protagonist apparently hated the other actress so much that they had to film a scene where they were both in separate locations and then CGI it together, (laughs) which is fucking bonkers. So this is like the reverse of that. Yes. Grow up, please. Um, and it led to Zach Woods getting more screen time. Always a plus. He should have even more in the future, I think. Which probably will happen because he's been getting by far the most buzz this season yeah. of anyone. Deservedly so. And him really becoming extremely disillusioned with Richard more so than he had been in the previous years because Richard becomes a complete monster this season and they get to have a couple quite emotional scenes and then Richard actually has to understand that he's done a bad thing which as far as I know doesn't really happen in a major way up to the end of that season no he has to apologize for something it's wild Yeah, the only punishment that Richard receives is financial. You know, when something goes wrong with the business, he's really emotionally invested because the business is his his child. But the punishment is to do with the business, whereas, like, what happens in season four is that he's so desperate for, like, power and success that he starts doing stuff that's wildly unethical. And Jared is obviously hitched his horse to this wagon and is like, oh my god, how can you be doing stuff that's this bad? This arc kind of goes on for, like, the whole of the latter half of season four. Um, And it works really well because for the past couple of seasons, they've been building up Jared's backstory to make him more vulnerable. You know, there's amazing lines, like, there's at one point, when he's saying that he can't get back into his own apartment because he's sublet it to some guy who won't leave because he's constantly being like <laughs> he's constantly being like victimized by people taking advantage of him. But he's like, yeah, you know, I just I just do use my trick that I did when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> um, and the people are like, oh yeah, what was the trick? Um, and he's like, well, you know, I just imagine that my skeleton is myself and my flesh is my house and then wherever I go I'm at home and it's just so bleak it's so bleak but that's like a perfect illustration of the really like surreal stuff that he comes out with apparently a significant proportion of this is just like Zach Woods making up this really bizarre stuff 
Um, which, yeah, Aww. there's an amazing interview about him and with him that we will kind of link to in the show notes because he is a fascinating individual. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, they've oh. kind of set that up and then in season four, he basically has to act as the moral centre because Dinesh and Guilfoyle obviously are always there as supporting cast, but they are intentionally really amoral. Like the one thing they have in common is that they're just like not nice. And in Guilfoyle's case, it's like his ideology, like he's a Satanist. So he's, I mean, not in the sense that like Satanists are evil, but it's more like he is sort of intentionally ignoring the things that modern society thinks are morally good. Whereas like Dinesh is completely corrupted <laughs> and he's just like, especially with women, it's like he treats his girlfriend like so badly, but in a really crappy, like cowardly way. His girlfriend is this hacker and he like tricks her into a relationship. And then when she gets out of his depth, he like reports her to the FBI and oh, it's just like, so you are a nightmare funny. person, but he does it in like a really weak way. <laughs> and it's just like, he's, he's so great. I love him. <laughs> um, with Jared, it's like he actually understands what right from wrong is. And the reason why he joined the company is because he thought that like Richard was something new and he's so horrified to see Richard turn into the type of person that has been abusing him through his whole life. When he finally confronts Richard with this, it's really intense and it works so well. I'm just thinking about it now, feeling an emotion. <laughs> but what's also so interesting about that last season in particular, and I think this is some of the dynamic throughout, but it really becomes intense in that season, is that they really do the... Breaking Bad structure of narrative. I know I keep referencing Breaking Bad, which is bizarre because it totally could not be more opposed to this show. But it is quite similar in a lot of ways, which is that any time Richard does a bad thing, it bites him in the ass. It's like clockwork. It's not one of those shows where, you know, somebody does something, it's kind of like, oh, well, ha ha. That's a joke now that you did this kind of assholeish thing. I mean, some of the other characters can get away with that, but Richard specifically over the course of that season is like, nope, if you've done a bad thing, you will have to be punished for it. And he keeps doing progressively worse and worse things because he thinks that that's going to wind up being the solution and it keeps not working. And you as the viewer are sitting there thinking, this is not going to end well for you, my friend. And it does not. And it's only once he actually is forced to confront that that something goes his way. And I just thought that was a really intelligent narrative strategy because the entire premise of the show is they're kind of trapped with all of these nightmare people. Yeah. In a broad sense, not within the house. Like the whole atmosphere of environment of Silicon Valley is that everyone is a nightmare. And when he sort of tries to do that, it doesn't work because it might in real life, but people shouldn't behave that way. Like, it's really bad. And it's also, it's like the punishment has to be personal because at no point for any company in the entire show does anyone really consider how to have a positive impact in the world, which is like really entertaining. But it's like, they have all this like rhetoric about making the world a better place, but like no one is doing kind of research into how to actually improve life in a meaningful way for real human beings outside Silicon Valley. And whenever people are kind of doing something good, it's always as damage control after they've massively fucked someone up, something up and like started electrocuting people with their cell phones or something, um, which is basically how it works because, uh, you know, Uber. <laughs> I highly recommend the Dollops episode on Uber. It's like basically an hour long podcast documentary starting with the beginning of Uber and going through the entire business. And even if you think you know how bad Uber is, you do not know how bad Uber is. It is truly mind blowing. Oh, 
I need to listen to that still. I've been putting it off because I know it will just make me depressed. And it's ugh. it's truly wild. People just keep throwing money at these guys. Yeah, no one will ever stop until something until Valley sinks beneath the waves. Yep, and then it will all be over. On that happy note, do we have <laughs> anything else to say about this show? I feel like we have so much to say, but I we've know. not. I mean, one can only go on for so long. Yeah. Um, I mean, I we have so much. Yeah, we love this show. Forever. But we should stop. Yeah, I mean, it's really wonderful. I recommend it. People should watch it and then write fan fiction because there's not enough fan fiction. Yeah, <laughs> I would like, I would to, like to write some. like an in character, emotionally sensitive fanfic about Jared, if you please. Oh, yeah. It is a challenge, though, for the reasons we were discussing about the sort of strange sex situation on the show, because I've read some of them that I'm sure are perfectly well written and that people might enjoy. This isn't like a criticism of the fix per se, but it's very difficult for me to sort of wrap my mind around internal monologues with some of these characters of people like, you know, admiring his hands or whatever, because it's just so... They're just like, like not... <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing is, it's not as if the characters are portrayed as asexual. No. Which is one of the many, many ways this show differs from the Big Bang Theory, which is like the worst fucking show. Yeah. It's basically the opposite of that. But um, it's more like they're they're so obsessed with work and they're so kind of detached from like everyone else's social interactions that they're just like not considering sexuality right. on the same way as everyone else. They just don't and, like, understand actually, how to behave. There's this amazing point in like season three or four where they reveal that Jared is the only person in the house who has a healthy sex life, which is just truly, that is the thing we didn't mention. I know, actually. I was like, it's I just knew truly we sublime. Oh, and it's, it's just, so it's good. so satisfying because it's like, of course he is the only person who's getting laid. He is the only person who's getting dates because he's a nice man. <laughs> who listens to people and has emotional intelligence and like has interests in the last season there's like several scenes where like you know he'll be hanging out with like a female friend or like he'll be going on dates or like you know rich will go around his house and he'll just have like five women hanging out in his house just like socializing because he's a person who can actually have a conversation and it's not like they're portraying him as a playboy they're portraying him as just someone who women like because he's a likable man and none of the other guys in the show can even conceive of this because they just can't they can't even have conversations with each other because they're all just competing all the time or working together when Richard dates some girl, she's clearly out of his league and is great. But, like, the joke isn't that he's a nerd who can't talk to women. The joke is that he's so hung up on this, like, really specific type of coding that he can't date someone who thinks that... who uses spaces instead of tabs in their code. <laughs> and he just goes into, like, a rage over this. And she's just like, it doesn't seem like a big deal. <laughs> and it's just, like, so indicative of the things that you've prioritised in their lives. And, like, even when they... When you see like the personal life of the Huli CEO in the final season, they go to his house and it's just this massive like McMansion full of like antiques that he smashes when he's in a mood. And he clearly has no home life. He doesn't have a family. And like, obviously that's not true of real Silicon Valley as such, but there have been various kind of pieces of media coverage about the lack of family life people living in Silicon Valley, partly because it's harder to socialize if you're constantly overworked and partly because everywhere is so expensive that you can't have children so but it's like that is that is going a bit into the weeds of real life but um it's very plausible that jared is the one who gets all the girls yes extremely extremely so 
it's really funny. There's also a line at one point where he says something about how he's run a lot of estate sales because he has lots of elderly friends, <laughs> which also seems plausible and very much in character. They do pick up on that stuff later on. There's also like a joke where he talks about like stuff that he regrets and he's like, yeah, you know, um, once I like slept with the owner of an elder care facility so I could move my friend Muriel up the wait list. Was I proud of that? No, but do I regret it? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's wonderful. We recommend it highly. Get back yeah. to us once you've watched all four seasons. <laughs> it's highly bingeable. I've binged oh, it both yeah. times I've watched it. You can get through it really fast. There's not I really that it many hours. Unhealthily fast. Because like yeah. each episode's like twenty five minutes long and it's a sitcom, so you can just be like have it on and do something else at yes. the same time. Yeah. All right. We should stop talking about this now before we, we truly go overboard. <laughs> Zach Wood's uh fangirl hour. <laughs> yes. Oh my word. Next week. Dunkirk. Yes. I'm very excited about this film. Christopher Nolan's new movie. Apparently almost a silent film. Who knows? We will be finding out. It's all mystery at this stage. But I'm sure it will be at least interesting to discuss, even if it turns out to be very weird, given that it takes place in three temporalities, as we have been told. Yeah. I'm considering seeing this the evening after we get back from Spain. <laughs> after I get off the plane, just walk straight into the movie theater and settle down for however fucking many hours of Dunkirk. It is not. It is under two hours long. Holy shit. Well done, Mr. Nolan. I know. I was like, maybe because no one speaks that he had to sort of cut it down a little bit. I think I... lack of dialogue will probably work in his favor. Yes, I suspect exactly this. But yeah, we will be back next week. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.